Um, in the late 90s, I was in college out in the Rochester area, and I got a job at a um, chain Mexican restaurant called Don Pablo's. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Anybody remember Don Pablo's? They no longer exist, but they were wildly popular for a time. And one of the things that really was special about Don Pablo's was they had this little tortilla making station where it was like you could actually see them make the tortillas that you were going to eat. I think they were trying to make it feel like it was an authentic restaurant, but really it was just pre-made dough that was just getting pressed through a machine. Um, my job was to be a host and a busser, so I was the one who greeted people as they came in and got them to their tables and then took their dirty dishes away. But one night I got to work and they said, David, the tortilla maker called in sick and we need a tortilla maker. Will you be our tortilla maker? And I was like, oh, I don't know, I haven't been trained, I don't really, and they said, it's a kitchen job. And I knew what that meant. Because in a restaurant, or at least at that time, if you had a kitchen job, at the end of your shift, you got a free meal. Which was like, as a college student, a free meal is gold. So I was already envisioning my to-go chicken flautas, and I was gonna go back to the dorm and eat them in front of my friends. And so I was like, yes, I am your tortilla maker. I was born for this job. And so they began to show me how to make it, and sure enough, it was very simple to do, and I was super excited to be the tortilla maker that night until service started. And then what I realized happens to the tortilla maker is they get treated like an animal in a zoo. As parents begin to bring their kids over to the tortilla station, and watch you and talk about you like you're not there. Like, just well, look, at, look at the man making the tortillas. And I'm just like, well, this is humiliating. I didn't want to be the tortilla maker anymore. I like the idea of being the tortilla maker, but the reality of being that person wasn't so great. One of the things that I've learned in life is that people like the idea, they like being called a servant until they're treated like one. They like being called a servant until they're treated like one. And we're in week two of our series, Why We Gather. And this morning, we're going to talk about the idea that we gather to serve. We gather to serve. And if you're like me, you like serving when you're noticed. You like serving when people appreciate it. You like serving when um, you get to serve the people that you want to serve. You like serving when there's a lot that comes along with it that's positive. But why serve when we're overlooked? Why serve when we are underappreciated? Why serve when we have to serve our enemies? And this morning, we're going to look at a passage written by Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus, who talks about serving. And we're going to learn some things about serving. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And he begins to give two examples of gifts. Whoever speaks as one who speaks for God, the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. 
And this morning from this passage, we're going to learn four reasons why we serve. And I want to say up front that although this morning I'm talking really, I'm focusing on serving in the church when we gather, serving on Sundays, serving on Wednesdays, I want you to know that as a church, we passionately believe that serving has to happen not just inside the walls of this church, but beyond the walls of this church. That the gifts that God has given you is not just to be exercised on Sundays, but is to be, are to be exercised Monday through Saturday to bless our community to make our city better, to make our community a great place to live. So if you are in medicine, then use your gift to extend God's hand of healing to other people. If you're an educator, use your gift to strengthen minds and to stir up curiosity. If you're in some sort of work where you're cleaning and taking care of things and handling things, then use your gift to make things better than you found them. Right, So we 100% believe and affirm the idea that the gifts that God gives us are not just so we can serve in the nursery or be a greeter or, or serve on the band. That's part of it, but that's just a small part of it. However, this morning, we really are focusing on how, when we gather like this, why do we serve? Okay, And so the first reason why we serve when we gather is very simple. It's you have a gift. You have a gift. There's a new Disney movie called Encanto, which is very popular. And if you have kids, you've probably watched it, and you probably have the soundtrack just, you know, buried into your brain right now. And um, Encanto tells the story of a young woman named Maribel who's part of a family that they all have incredible gifts, like superpowers. One of them is her sister is super strong, and her mom can heal people just by making a meal for them. Um, one of her uncles can can or one of her uncles can tell the future, and somebody else can hear things from a distance. Right, all these incredible gifts, but Maribel doesn't appear to have a gift, and she's just wondering, what is my special gift? What is special about me? And one of the reasons why I think the movie is so popular, besides the fantastic music, is that every single one of us can relate to her at some point in our lives. There's every single one of us, I think, at some point looks around and goes, but what's special about me? I I see their gift, and I see why people like them, and I see why people notice them, but what is my gift? And many times, we don't really see our gifts. And yet, Peter here... In, his opening, uh, in the opening of the sentence in verse 10, he makes an enormous assumption. And the assumption is this. Everyone has a gift. As each has received a gift. He doesn't say as some of you, as the most spiritual of you, as the most faithful of you, the most talented of you. He says every single one of you has received a gift. He basically sounds like Oprah saying, you have a gift, you have a gift, you have a gift, you have a gift. This is what he's doing. He was reminding us every person has a gift. And you have a gift to serve. The Bible is clear. But you have a gift for a purpose. And in the kingdom of God, your gift is never just about you. It's always about others. It's not about making you famous. It's about making Jesus famous. And it's not about showing off. It's about serving others. If you have a gift, it's not so that you can get all the attention and the fame. It's so that you can serve other people who need use of your gift. Now, there's three ways that people tend to either ignore or misuse or waste their gift. More than three. But let me just point out three of them to you really quick. The first one is this, that we compare our gift to 
to other people who have the same gift, right? We all fall into this trap. And we live in a world where everything is compared to everything. We have apps on our phone that are devoted to comparing restaurants to each other, right? Or maybe just me. We have apps on our phone that are, that are, that are uh, about comparing hotels or comparing vacation destinations. Well, if you go online and you Google the phrase top 10 whatever, top 10 basketball players of all times, top 10 places to get tacos in Brooklyn, whatever it is, like you're gonna find a list, you're gonna find a rating, you're gonna find comparisons. And then we live our lives on social media where we are always putting forth a version of ourselves to compare how happy and how interesting our lives are compared to everyone else's. And then we have these gifts and we look at these gifts and we look at other people's gifts and we fall in this trap of comparison. But the fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. And God's given you a gift just for you. If you want to kill it, spend all of your energy comparing it to other people's. Theodore Roosevelt is attributed with saying, comparison is the thief of joy. It will rip the joy of your gift away from you. Because when you compare yourself to other people, here's where you land in one of two places. You either feel superior or inferior, better than or lesser than, pride or envy, one or the other. And so we have to protect ourselves. The gift that God has given you, he entrusted you with for a purpose. Listen, here's the good news for some of you. You're never gonna answer for someone else's gift. You're not gonna answer for other people's gifts. We will answer for the gifts that God has given us. And so don't fall into the trap of comparing it to others. The second thing that we do sometimes is we envy other people's gifts while we neglect our own. When I go out to eat with a group of people, one of the most important things for me is to determine quickly who are the people here that will share? Who are the sharers? <laughs> Who's cool with family style? That's a big deal to me, right? Because I look around the table and I see sharers and I see selfish sinners. That's all I see. <laughs> sharers and selfish sinners. People committed to my joy and people committed to my misery. And so like family style is my favorite description of a dinner because I want to try everybody's meal. I want to try it all. And when I go out to eat with people that I don't know well enough to ask for a bite of their food, my technique usually is to offer them a bite of mine, right? That's kind of the trick. But then sometimes they don't take it, and then I know, okay, this is going to be miserable. Um, sometimes they take it, and they never offer back, which is twice as worse. But, um, you know, I like to share. And some of you are right now thinking, never go out to dinner with Pastor Dave, because some of you are not sharers. I know you're not. You just want your meal, and you don't want anyone to look at it. Um, but when I go out to dinner with people who don't share, I inevitably get food envy. <laughs> I look at other people's dishes, and I think, oh, I made a huge mistake. There was a burger on the menu. Why did I order a salad? What was I thinking? And I'm just staring at their burger, dreaming about, because we, we envy. We see what other people have, and we envy it. And that happens sometimes with gifts, too. We see other people's talents. We say, I, I always wish I could sing. Oh, man, I wish I had that outgoing personality. That I wish I was funny. I wish there was this. And we're basically saying, God, you didn't make me the way you should have made me. You didn't give me what you should have given me. And here's the, real, here's the real sad thing, is that as we're busy envying other people's gifts, we neglect our gifts. There's no other you. It's just you. You have your gifts for a reason, for a purpose. It's been said that who, what you are is God's gift to you, but who you become or what you become is your gift to God. Giving the gift was God's work, but developing the gift is our work. And so God help us not to be so busy envying other people's gifts that we neglect our own. And then the last thing here, and this is a big one, we make our gift the source of our identity. This is our society right now. What we do equals who we are. 
and what we're worth and our value. So we can't separate our gift from who we are. And here's the sad irony that sometimes the very gifts that God gives us causes us to not love him because we end up falling in love with the gift more than the giver of the gift. Imagine giving you know, a family member that you love a gift and then you quickly realize they love that gift more than me. That's how I felt when I gave my daughter a phone. I think she loves that <laughs> gift more than she loves me. And the heartbreak that our Father, our Heavenly Father must feel when he sees us so enamored with our gifts that we don't know who we are apart from our gifts. By the way, this is something we all will struggle with, right? And, and, and whether you're, whatever your talent is, whatever your gift is. And one of the ways that you'll know that this is a struggle for you is that you will not receive criticism well at all in your area of giftedness. You will walk away and go, who do they think they are? They're not even as good as me at that. Why would they dare? say That's... That's a sign that your gift is becoming your identity. That's where you're finding your value and your worth. You'll never be able to receive criticism well. You will not be able to rejoice with other people who have your gift but excel in it past you. You won't be able to do it. You'll make all sorts of excuses for why they cheated their way there or they had advantages that you didn't have. You'll create all sorts of narratives. You will not be able to rejoice with people. And so just be careful about this because this is not just a mistake in terms of the use of our time and our gift. This is, a, this is something that will corrupt our souls. This is something that will steal from us our love for Jesus. So you have a gift. Second reason why we serve is because others have needs. Peter said, above all, I love this. This is, I wish, you know, imagine if the church lived this out all the time. It certainly doesn't and hasn't, but imagine. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Here's what Peter is saying in this verse. He's saying, when you're looking to serve, look at the needs around you. Look for people who need love. That's everyone. Look for people who need care. That's everyone. Everyone needs their sins to be covered. Everyone needs to be welcomed in. And so everyone has needs. And so we use, and we, we use our gifts and we serve because others have needs. In Luke chapter uh, 12, no, what is it? Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're probably familiar with it. A Jewish man is walking on a road. He gets beat up by some thugs. And then a, 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 a priest walks by and doesn't help him. Uh, a Levite walks by and doesn't help him. And then a Samaritan who would have had ethnic and racial reasons to not just not help him but actually finish off the job because this guy was half dead he stops and he serves him at great cost to himself and the whole story was predicated by a question when someone said to Jesus who is my neighbor who should I really love and care for what Jesus does with this story is is remarkable he redefines the word neighbor for all time and here's what he's saying neighbor is not defined by proximity your neighbor is not just who you live next to, people who live in your community, people who fit into your uh, world. Also, neighbor is not defined by commonality. So it's not just people who think like you, vote like you, social economic standing of you, same ethnicity and race of you. It's not proximity. It's not commonality. Jesus says neighbor is defined by opportunity. Whoever you have the opportunity to serve immediately becomes your neighbor. And now you serve them because others have needs. Everything you've received this morning as you've come to church, from the second you pulled into the driveway to where you're seated, everything that you've encountered is because somebody has considered your needs and thought about you. If somebody smiled at you and held the door open for you, that's because the greeters got here 20 minutes early just to be there because of your need. 
You know you can open the door for yourself. We know that. But we consider the need to be welcomed and agreed. If you had some coffee and whatever the pastries are out there, it's because someone got here early and set that up, thinking about your needs. If you walked in here and it wasn't filthy out there, it's because cleaners came here in the middle of the week and yesterday and cleaned the lobby and cleaned the bathrooms and, and vacuumed the carpet in here because we have needs. If you dropped your kids off next door at Trinity Kids, it's because there's people there who are thinking about your needs and they're serving you. you know, a couple weeks ago, there were 50 kids over there between the two services. There's a lot of children in this church who were serving their needs every single week. If you dropped your kid at the nursery, it's because someone's thought about your needs. If you can hear me right now, and see the TV, it's because there's two people back there who came here at 7.30 this morning to get ready for you because they're here to meet your needs. If you could sing, it's because there was a band that practiced Thursday night and again early this morning to do as good of a job as they can to serve your needs. And if you're listening to this message right now, it's because I've worked this week to put this together for your needs. So here's what I'm saying. Your needs are being met every single Sunday by people who have gifts. The question is, how are you using your gift on Sundays? to meet other people's needs, to strengthen and serve other people. You know, one of the things that happens sometimes is, is people begin to think, like, I'll serve and use my gift, but my gift um, has to be, I have a very specific gift, and it fits in a very specific place. And, you know, we'll talk about things where we have needs. We need people to love students, teenagers on Wednesday night. We need students, that, we need people to disciple children. We need people to clean. We need, and people will say things like, it's not really my gift. <laughs> it's not really my passion. I, can't, I don't really get excited about it. I, it's not really my thing, right? Now, I, I want to say we want people serving where they are gifted. So if you hate children, <laughs> don't, don't try to work in Trinity, kids. You're, it's not going to go well. If your face always looks angry, don't ask to be a greeter. We're not going to put you there. If you can't sing, don't ask to be on the band. We won't put you up here, right? So we do believe in getting people on the bus in the right seats. Like, we 100% believe in that. However, we also, I'm also concerned that sometimes this whole it's not my gift thing is just becoming an excuse for not serving, for not serving. Because we tend to define gift as something that I can do that other people can't. So when someone says, what is your gift? You immediately think of what is the thing that I'm best at that other people can't do? And then when it's needed, I will use it. And that, but this is what I want to challenge you this morning is don't define a gift as something, as something you can do that other people can't. Instead, define a gift as anything you can do that other people need. Does that make sense? Don't define a gift as something you can do that others can't. Define a gift as literally anything you can do that someone else might need. That's your gift. And then use your gift to serve because others have needs. We're told in Scripture so many times, 16 times, love one another, honor one another, build one another up. Bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, submit to one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, show hospitality to one another, pray for one another. And then in this passage, use the gifts that God has given you for the benefits of one another. It's others have needs. Our third point here, why we serve is this, because we have a glorious future. We have a glorious future. We're going to sing about this at the end of the service, that we have this glorious future of what is yet to come before us. But I want you to see this. Uh, Peter kind of starts this, um, this verse in kind of an alarming way. Did you notice this? He basically says, the world's ending. The end of all things is at hand. And we're like, ah. You know, I, I, I envision Chicken Little. You know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, running around and whipping the barnyard into a frenzy. 
But when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he's not, of course, saying that literally the world is about to end. He wrote this 2,000 years ago. He's saying that what Jesus did has set things in motion that we're headed towards the end of this redemption plan. It's all about to, un, uh, it's all about to happen. It's all going to happen before us. The kingdom of God is going to be seen in our midst. But what he says is the end of all things are at hand. But instead of saying, so panic and scream and run around, he says, be self-controlled and be sober. And here's Matt Chandler, a pastor I was listening to talk about this this week. He said, Peter's saying, the end is at near. The end is near. The end is at hand. What do we do? What do we do, Christians? Be faithful. <laughs> be faithful. It's not about great things. It's about being faithful in the regular things about being faithful in the small things. It's about serving one another. See, our glorious future is this. We will spend eternity reigning and ruling with Jesus. So if that's our future, let's spend right now serving one another and serving. You're gonna have a lot of time to reign and rule. You're gonna do it forever. But what are you supposed to do right now? Serve. Serve one another. Serve Jesus. Serve his purposes. We have a glorious future. And then the last thing, the band's going to come. The last reason we serve is because you have been served. Now, this passage that we read carries some extra weight with it because of who wrote it. It's a man named Peter who was one of the 12 who followed Jesus. He was one of the three in the inner circle with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And we read this story in John chapter 13. It's the night that Jesus is betrayed. This is hours before he's going to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And it says this, Peter is in the room. They're all there to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And it says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and in the Gospel of John, anytime you see the phrase, the hour, it's the cross. Jesus knew where he was going. His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So what we're about to see in the rest of John 13 is what it looks like to love somebody all the way to the end. And as the people of God, we have to ask ourselves, God, what does it look like for me to love these people to the end? And Jesus does something shocking. He takes on the servant robe, and he takes the servant's towel, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, washing their dirty feet was a job that wasn't just reserved for servants. It was reserved for the lowest servant, the lowest. And Jesus, the master, the teacher, the Lord, begins to wash their feet. Unthinkable. And Peter, good old Peter, who wrote this letter that we've been reading this morning, Jesus comes to Peter and Peter says, no way. No way. You're not washing my feet. I know who you are. You're the son of God. You're going to wash my feet? No way. Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part. And what Jesus is saying, if you cannot humble yourself to receive my service to you, you'll never be in the kingdom. That is the biggest thing that keeps people outside of the kingdom of God. They cannot humble themselves to receive the servant work of the suffering servant, Jesus. And so then Peter can't help himself. He's such a clown. He just like goes from putting his foot in his mouth to the other side. And he goes, well, then not just my feet, but wash my whole body. He's asking Jesus for a sponge bath, basically. And Jesus is like, hold on, Peter. You don't need that. You don't understand. What I'm offering you is enough. And Peter demonstrates in his foolishness two mistakes that you and I make. Number one, we, don't we will not humble ourselves to receive what Jesus offers us. But then number two, we think that what he offers us might not be enough. So we better do a little more. 
So Jesus washes the feet of men who betrayed him, Judas. He was still there. He washed Judas' feet. Peter, who would deny him. The others who would abandon him. And then after he washes their feet, he says this to them. He says, do you understand? Do you understand what I have done to you? What I have just done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. He's saying, you're right, I shouldn't have done this. My position doesn't, uh, shouldn't require me to do this. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. How has Jesus served you and me? Not by washing our feet, but by cleansing our souls. Because he got up from that table and he walked to the cross where he paid the ultimate price. Jesus wasn't just our example, he was our substitute. He was the true and better sacrifice. He was the one pure lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth so that you and I might have the welcome of the Father and might have the hope of heaven and might have the motivation to serve because you have been served. And when you grow weary in your serving, and I'm sure some of you are weary in your serving, some of you serve a lot in this church, and maybe you're growing weary in that serving. When you grow weary in your serving, remind yourself, I have a gift. Others have needs. We have a glorious future, and I have been served. The Son of God gave his life to serve me. In fact, Paul says in Philippians that Jesus took the form of a servant, Philippians 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The question is, are we willing to die and serve? It's a death to yourself to serve someone else, isn't it? You have to die to your needs to care about other people's needs. And that night, Peter did something super interesting before this meal. He tried to kill someone in the garden. They arrested Jesus. Peter grabs his sword. He attacks the high priest servant. His name's Malchus. Chops his ear off, which means he was probably swinging for his head or for his throat. Jesus says, put the sword away. Here's Peter willing to kill for Jesus. But hours later, when a little girl says to him, hey, aren't you one of his followers? Peter's like, no, no way, and begins to call down curses. And what you have is this counterfeit faith that Peter is struggling with, where on one moment he's willing to kill for Jesus, fight for him, but on the other moment he's not willing to die for him. And God keep us from being a people who are willing to fight for God, but not willing to die for God. A church that's willing to fight battles to prove people that they're wrong and to show people how bad they are, to go out there and try to kill for God, so to speak, metaphorically, but unwilling to die for God, to lay our lives down and say, ah, I'll serve, I'll serve. Maybe it's not my gift, maybe it's not my passion, but if it can help someone, I'll serve. And this is what the Lord is asking of us, to gather to serve. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that this morning the Holy Spirit would help us to examine our hearts and ask, how am I serving? How can I serve? Where are the opportunities? Maybe you don't know the opportunities to serve. Well, talk to a pastor, reach out to someone. There's places for people to serve one another and to encourage one another. God has a great work for us to do as a church. And it's not going to be done by an audience. It's going to be done by an army. An army of servants who take up the towel, who take up the basin and wash the feet of even those who have hurt them. 
and even those who misunderstand them, but are willing to follow the example of Jesus and live out of the truth that he has served us with his life, death, and resurrection. Let's stand together and sing.